Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. So, coming up in episode 99 of the GDPR Weekly Show, we have a review of COVID-19 tracking apps worldwide to see if any of them have ventured better than the UK NHS solution. We then have a story of racial discrimination causing data breaches in Irish meat processing plant, again related to Top ID 19. And still on Top ID 19, we have a look at a Dublin restaurant which has installed artificial intelligence cameras in response to Top ID 19 to try and track the temperatures of people entering the restaurant and also keeping account of how many people are in the restaurant at any moment in time. We then have news of another data breach at NHS Orkney. And then moving away from Top ID 19, we have the latest update on the Equifax data breach. We then have news that Whitehall Departments reported 500 data breaches in the financial year 2019-20. We then have news that Clearview Artificial Intelligence is under investigation by the ICO here in the UK and also by Australian data regulators. We then have news that a privacy group is taking high court action against the Irish Data Protection Commission. Then we go over to the Netherlands where the Dutch DPA has issued a record fine against the company for not complying with data subject access requests. We then go to the USA where Morgan Stanley are offering compensation after a data breach. And we then travel across the US to California, where the California Consumer Privacy Act is soon to be surpassed by the California Privacy Rights Act. And we look at what new features are in the California Privacy Rights Act and also reflect on how closely modelled it is on GDPR. And then finally for this week, we have news from Germany, where German authorities have seized the server with US police data, which was taken in a data breach in Houston, Texas. As we mentioned, it's episode 99 of the GDPR Weekly Show, which means next week it course will be episode 100. So don't miss the chance to enter our competition that we're running in conjunction with episode 100. All you need to do is to list down the five countries where you believe we have the most listeners across the world. Once you have that list of five countries, just email it to competitions at gdprweeklyshow.com and you'll be entered into the prize draw to potentially win £100 next week. But please don't delay on that because we will be closing entries at midnight on Friday the 17th of July and we'll be announcing the winner in next week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show, which, as I've said, will be episode 100, and we have a few special features planned for next week. So enjoy this week's episode. We hope you find it useful and informative, as always, and most certainly don't miss next week's episode, episode 100 of the GDPR Weekly Show. If you have any feedback on the show, please send it to us by email to feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com. We do read every piece of feedback that we receive and wherever possible we incorporate your suggestions into future episodes of the show. Unfortunately, due to the volume of feedback we receive, we cannot reply to individual emails sent to the feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com address. If you require help with GDPR, then instead of using the feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com address, please send those queries to helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com and one of our specialists will get in touch to help you. Your coronavirus roundup. 
from the GDPR Weekly Show. With the headlines on the mainstream media in the UK this weekend highlighting the millions or in some cases alleged billions of pounds which the UK government spent on its abandoned NHS COVID-19 tracking app and associated track and trace, we thought we'd have a look at other systems across the world and see how they're performing any better. And the sad news is really that none of them seem to be performing that well. In Qatar, India and the UK and the Netherlands, each has tried to develop a tracking app with varying degrees of success, but none of them with a success level high enough to be sure that regulators feel confident in putting the application out into the public domain for the whole population to use, which is the whole point, because unless you get the large number of data points into the system, then the system doesn't really do anything for you. And that's what people, I think, are finding. In the US, then companies there are just starting to develop contact tracing apps. But again, in the US, it's a complicated picture because instead of deploying one national app right across the whole country, each state has been told it must create their own. Now, this means obviously that in one way, perhaps you might end up with a better solution because you've got more teams working on the thing at the same time and hopefully one of them might hit on a solution that actually works reliably. The downside is, of course, that each team is working with a much lower cybersecurity budget than it would be if the whole thing was funded as a federal project. But given the reluctance of the Trump administration to divert federal funds towards COVID 19 and particularly towards development of a track and trace app, then that's not going to happen. So it's down to each state and therefore, of course, down to each state's local authorities on just how much they're prepared to spend to develop a track and trace app. And there's been some controversy in some of the apps that have been developed. For instance, in North Dakota, the authorities released their Care 19 contact tracing app. And then it was discovered that user location data within the app was being shared with a marketing service called Foursquare. And while members of Congress have started submitting bills focused on app legislation covering data security and privacy, this topic is still very much in its early stages on Capitol Hill. What is known, of course, is that Both Apple and Google have worked together to create an API that can create contact tracing app. The API requires user consent. It works with Bluetooth. It's anonymous and does not store personal information on any server, protecting user privacy all the time. And it works for both Android and iOS and and all the data remains on each person's local device, which is great. The downside is, is that it's been established that the actual Bluetooth connection to other devices doesn't work that reliably. Because a for instance is that a phone being held in a hand might well detect somebody at two meters from you. If your phone's in your pocket and particularly if it's in your pocket and it's gone to sleep, then it won't. And so you could be meeting people whose phone is actually broadcasting out that they've been with someone who has got COVID-19 and your phone's just not picking it up and therefore your phone doesn't get alerted. So Whilst the development of these remote tracking apps continues, and it will continue, and let's all hope, because it's in the interest of everyone and right across the globe, I think, that a solution is found at some point. So let the development carry on. But in the meantime, all the emphasis needs to be on the traditional manual track and trace systems that rely on human beings. 
and rely on people revealing their contacts and, as we discussed last week and the week before, rely on venues, particularly bars and restaurants, and, and I think probably shops will come into this as well at some point, recording the contact details for people who come into their properties. And that's going to be an onerous task. There's no getting away from that. But until we can come up with an automated solution that works and works reliably and works for everyone, then manual track and trace is as good as we're going to get. This is a subject, of course, we will no doubt come back to again in the GDPR Weekly Show. But I hope that you found this update on the situation around the world useful, if not too reassuring at the moment. Stay in. Stay safe. There was controversy in the Irish Republic this week when it was discovered that levels of institutional racism and discrimination in the health service had led to a serious data breach where employers were told of coronavirus test results before meat factory workers who had been tested, it's been claimed. Adil McGinley, director of the Migrant Rights Centre Ireland, MRCI, described the practice as a gross and serious breach of confidentiality. She told the Special Top ID 19 committee that comments made by a senior health official about the scandal were deeply worrying. To give a little history, in May it was revealed that workers' test results were being shared first with employers before workers themselves. The incidents relate to widespread screening of meat factory workers in the Republic of Ireland, with public health officials alerting employers in this first instance in an effort to trigger prompt infection control step. When the practice was made public, the HSC said it would end. However, Ms McGinley said it remains unclear if new guidelines or training have been issued for staff who are carrying out contract tracing in factories. She added, Deeply worrying are the revelations made by the Director of Public Health in the Midwest, Dr Mai Mannix, while speaking at an HSE briefing on June 5th. Her comments reveal a level of institutional racism and discrimination that led to this very serious data breach. Dr Mannix has been speaking about the length of time it took to contact people whose native language is not English. Ms McGinley claimed these comments discriminate against people from a migrant background and are in breach of their public sector duty. She said this undermines trust in the HSE, leaving workers and their families exposed and without accessible information to isolate if necessary. Irish meat factories have been hit with clusters of cases of COVID 19 as have of course food processing plants in the UK. And in Ireland, more than 800 workers have been infected with the virus so far. Research carried out by MRCI revealed that almost half the workers felt that their employers do not enforce top ID 19 safety measures, while 48% said there were still not sufficient measures in place. This is becoming a worrying factor, I think, as people return to work, because whilst we're talking here about meat factories and their problems, and as I say, their problems are not restricted to the Irish Republic, We've certainly detected similar problems in the UK. We've also got things, of course, like the ongoing investigation now into the boohoo-related garment factories in Leicester and what they may have played in the re-peak of COVID-19 in Leicester compared to the rest of the UK. As companies go back to work, it's important that whilst, of course, it's great to have people back to work, that's what we all want, we need to get the economy moving again, that can't be at the expense of people's general health and therefore it is crucially important, I think, that all employers give attention to the Job ID 19 requirements and make sure that they stick to them. Because if you run a company, it's not in your interest that all your staff have to go home again. So do your bit and help your staff to work safely. 
Coming back to the Irish meat factories, research carried out by MRCI revealed that half of the workers felt that their employers did not enforce top of the 19 safety measures, while 48% said there were still not sufficient measures in place. The report also found that in workplaces with clusters, just 30% of workers felt their employers took effective action to keep them safe, with 67% claiming their employer had not done enough to prioritise their safety. Ms. Virginia called for a task force to be set up to look at the terms and conditions for workers. She also raised issues around work permits describing how difficult it is for workers to assert their right. Ms. McGinley said workers report to us that they cannot choose not to come to work if ill or seek improved conditions for fear of losing their employment permit and immigration status. Sinn Féin's Matt Cathy queried whether any staff returned to work before they received their COVID-19 test results. Brid McCarran, the Workplace Rights Coordinator at MRCI, said some staff only received their results when they approached their employer. We have anecdotal evidence that some felt their employers were withholding positive results from workers who were not displaying symptoms simply to keep up production efforts, she told the committee. Labour Member of the Parliament, Duncan Smith, said the meat processing factors are the largest systemic work exploitation in the state. He added, were there any incidents where the state provided PPE in meat plants? It is my view that not only have many employers let these workers down, but the state have abandoned these workers in these plants. Ms McCowan said, of the people we spoke to, 15% didn't have contracts, 9% weren't sure if they had contracts, and a further 13% said their contracts didn't reflect their terms and conditions. We've heard recent reports that over the last two years, workers have been given new contracts on the factory floor and told to sign them. The contracts are in English and they haven't been translated or explained and are intimated when there is resistance to sign the contract. Migrant workers are extremely poorly treated, there is a day-to-day lack of respect and value bestowed and a huge lack of trust from workers. The main nationalities of the workers are Polish, Lithuanian, Romanian, Latvian, Moldovian, Slovakian, Brazilian, South African, Botswanan and Filipino. Workers also reported to the MRCI that EU and non-EU migrant workers are overrepresented on the factory floors, meaning they are on lower paid jobs. Meanwhile, Ireland is beginning to re-import COVID-19 cases through international travel. After a reproductive rate of COVID-19 in Ireland increased to 1, Professor Philip Nolan, Chair of the National Public Health Emergencies Team, NPHET, Modelling Group, said a travel-related introduction of the disease is problematic. The Department of Health announced on Thursday that a further six people diagnosed with COVID-19 had died in the Republic of Ireland. It brings the total number of deaths linked to the virus in Ireland to 1,743. A further 23 cases of the virus have also been confirmed, bringing the overall number of those infected to 25,565. It emerged that of the 23 new cases, 15 were directly or indirectly related to international travel. This situation in meat processing factories is likely to continue in the coming weeks, and so we will bring you updates in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. Anyone can spread coronavirus. Stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives. With the reopening of bars and restaurants, there have been a number of issues about collecting data from individuals and storing that data, and we cover those off in our privacy sheets, which are available for download on our website at www.gdprweeklyshow.com forward slash 12ID19. Another issue has been how you check the temperature of people and also how you identify how many people are in the premises at any moment in time. 
one establishment in Ireland, Cafe on Seine in Dublin, has taken to installing 127 Hitch Vision surveillance cameras, according to Create Security Solutions, the company who installed them. It's understood that Hitch Vision cameras are also installed in fellow mercantile group restaurant Pichet. Dublin City Council recently blacklisted Vision over data protection concerns after the cameras were installed at a City Council football pitch in Bluebell in Dublin and subsequently a complaint was raised that a data protection impact assessment had not been successfully carried out into the artificial intelligence capabilities of the cameras before they'd actually been installed. And the same is alleged here at Cafe and saying that no data protection impact assessment has been carried out. The cameras are connected to the internet and have extra functions such as thermal imaging and the ability to automatically detect the number of people in the premises. The cameras can, amongst other features, monitor the temperatures of customers and staff. A spokesman said that when somebody is in the field of view of the camera, a little red buzzer goes off if they have a high temperature. The purpose of the camera, the venue says, is to give customers and staff peace of mind. But as we mentioned in previous articles on the GDPR which you showed, People's temperature is a concern if you actually keep that record because people's temperature is regarded as sensitive data under GDPR. A spokesman said, what we're trying to do is to provide a system that monitors and takes skin surface temperatures, which is not an indicator for COVID-19 in itself. It's only one indicator. Skin surface temperature can indeed show if someone is running a high temperature. It can be taken discreetly when the customer is in a queue and is then shown on the screen to the data controller of the HIC vision cameras in the building. But also very importantly, that's recorded and contained for 30 days. And of course that's where it does fall under GDPR. The spokesman said that the temperature which would trigger the alert can be set by the data controller. In the case of the Cafe Unsane, if a customer is running the temperature above 38 degrees Celsius, the customer is discreetly brought into a separate area of the cafe and told to wait for 10 minutes. The temperature is then taken again, and if the temperature is still above 38 degrees, the customer is asked to leave the premises. We've approached Cafe Unsane for a comment about how they are storing this data, but they've declined to provide us any information as we go to broadcast. However, they have responded to a user on their Instagram page. They stated that the temperature checks are mandatory. If someone has a temperature, we have an area they can wait for 10 minutes and then try again. It's still too high. The second time, we will not permit entry, they said. The user also noted that customers might have a high body temperature for reasons other than COVID-19, to which the official responded, Of course, but if you're feverish, your temperature is much higher than a high sitting body temperature. It's understood that the artificial intelligence of the cameras would allow the cameras to identify individuals who enter the premises, but the CAF have declined to comment on whether they are using that feature in this case. What this case does illustrate is the importance that if you are introducing any new technology or any new systems like these cameras that are in place in Cafe and Sane, it is very important that you do carry out a data protection impact assessment to ensure that what you're installing and your procedures remain GDPR compliant. If you're unsure about data protection impact assessments, then we did feature this in our last episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Alternatively, please drop us an email to helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com and we'll be delighted to help you through the process of conducting a data protection impact assessment. If we do receive an update from Cafe Unsane, we will of course bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Stay in. Stay safe. 
In episode 98 of the GDPR Weekly Show, we brought you news of data breaches at NHS Orkney in Scotland. Well, now a review is to be carried out into these data breaches because in the last week, there's now been a third data breach. All these data breaches are going in the space of less than two months. The latest incident saw a discharge letter being given to the wrong patient. It follows dozens of COVID-19 test results being sent to a local business by mistake and confidential personal details relating to staff travel being sent to a journalist. New Interim Chief Executive for NHS Orkney, Michael Dixon, has requested an external rapid review of procedures. In a statement, Mr Dixon apologised and said it was not acceptable for such things to be happening. Mr Dixon said, It is with disappointment that I have been alerted once again to another data breach within NHS Orkney. The circumstances of the incident are currently being investigated so we can understand how this has occurred. The recent run of data handling incidents indicates to me there is a problem within NHS Orkney that extends beyond minor errors that are quickly rectified. I have requested an external rapid review of the board's standards, policies, procedures, training and leadership in this area, he said. Mr Dixon went on to say, I understand why the people of Orkney will feel angry and concerned by this latest breach. I want to reassure them that steps are being taken to identify why these mistakes continue to happen and that corrective action is being taken. To the patients involved, I apologise. There is no excuse for this and it will be dealt with. Mr Dixon, who currently leads the House Board in Shetland, is also heading Orkney for the time being. On 30th of June, it was announced that NHS Orkney's Chief Executive Designate, Ian Stewart, who came under fire for leaving the islands for his mainland home during lockdown, would no longer be taking up what should have been his new job. If we receive any further updates from NHS Orkney on this, we will of course bring them to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. And now, the rest of this week's news. If you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, you'll know that for some time now we've been following the data breach from 2017 at Equifax. Well, this week Equifax Inc. had to face claims tied to its 2017 data breach of violating New York consumer protection law in failing to protect its information. U.S. District Judge Brian Cogan on Wednesday rejected the company's dismissal bid in the Eastern District of New York, saying plaintiff Matthew Weiss's claim is plausible under the state's deceptive acts and practices law. Weiss also beat a motion by the credit reporting company to dismiss the claims because he alleges opting out of a larger class action, Cogan ruled. Courts tend to put claims following class action settlements under similar facts unless a plaintiff to the action opts out of the deal. Companies hit by a breach, however, can beat data security claims in later trial stages using standard or jurisdictional challenges. Equifax did beat claims that it had violated the Federal Fair Credit Reporting Act because these allegations were inadequate, Codron said, although personal data stolen in a breach doesn't fall within that law's purview, he said. An Equifax representative didn't immediately respond to a request for comment. This case stems from the breach that exposed information more than 145 million American customers. On January the 14th this year, Equifax reached a $380 million settlement with consumers. It reached a separate $575 million deal in July 2019 with the Federal Trade Commission, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and the state's Attorney General. Doubtless this won't be the end of this Equifax case because it just continues to roll on and on and whenever there is an update we will always bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Celebrate our 100th episode with us and you could win £100. Just name the five countries where we have most listeners worldwide. Listen out for more details. Thanks, Isabella. Yes, it's true. 
all you have to do to be in with a chance of winning £100 when we come to celebrate episode 100 in a few weeks' time is to guess which five countries we have the most listeners in. Just list down the five countries, put them on an email to us, and one lucky person will win £100. We also have some limited edition t-shirts and mug for runners-up. So don't delay, do it today. Hey Mike, tell our listeners what they have to do. Send your entry to competition at gdprradioshow.com Publictechnology.net claimed an exclusive this week when it put together research which showed that Whitehall Department had reported 500 personal data breaches to the ICO in the financial year 2019-2020. to A Freedom of Information request submitted to the ICO by Public Technology reveals that during the 12 months to the end of March 2020, central government entities reported a cumulative total of 495 breaches to the ICO. This represents a slight increase of 1.9% on the number reported in the previous year. Following the investigations, the ICO required some form of action on the part of the data controller in 10 of these cases. It's understood that a further 35 are still under investigation, 2 are yet to be assigned to an ICO caseworker, and 448 processes have concluded with no action required. Individual case details and outcomes are not available, but notable examples of breaches known to have been suffered by departments in the 2019-20 year included two separate incidents reported by the Home Office within the first week of the financial year. First, the Home Office claimed that an administrative error had seen it exposed the email addresses of hundreds of individuals that had expressed an interest in the then newly launched Windrush compensation scheme, and then just a few days later it accidentally leaked the email addresses of 240 applicants of the EU settlement scheme. Following these incidents, Home Office Minister Baroness Williams of Trafford indicated that strict controls have been put in place on the use of emails when communicating with two or more members of the public, including oversight of communications by senior civil servants and use of alternative technology to prevent recurrence. Moving to the Department of Education, the ICO was alerted in January to a breach in which the security of the records of 28 million current or former students had been compromised, although the university's minister, Chris Stidmore, claimed that during the incident, there was no data released about individual learners, only a confirmation or denial that a particular record existed. And then in April, the Department of Education revealed that following the breach, it had implemented a number of new measures and controls on data access, including revoking the rights of certain third parties. The ICO indicated at the time that it was still investigating the matter. A spokesperson for the ICO said, The ICO is considering a number of potential compliance concerns associated with the data obtained from the Department of Education's Learning Records Service. Moving away from central government, in the financial year 2019-20, the ICO also received a collective tally of 1,006 data breach reports from local government. In 10 of these cases, it is deemed that further action is required by the council in question, including two in which the authorities had to agree an improvement plan with the ICO. Some 75 of these breaches still remain under investigation, while 920 processes have completed with no further action required, and one incident is yet to be assigned to a case officer. The overall total of breach reports from local government is down slightly from the 1,069 that were recorded in the 2018-19 financial year. But the number of incidents being reported is still massively increased on pre-GDPR levels. In 2017-18, which ended two months before GDPR was brought in, local councils collectively reported only about 300 data breaches. We don't find that particularly surprising because most people have become much more aware of data breaches and their responsibilities and what they have to do since GDPR came into force, and that has to be a good thing. 
So it's no real surprise that the number of data breaches now is much higher than it was pre-GDPR. Indeed, that was one of the expected outcomes of the introduction of GDPR. In 2017-18, the health sector was by far the biggest source of breach reports, accounting for more than a third of the total. The education and local government sectors were a distant second and third, on 11% and 9% respectively. Breach reports related to general commercial business also represented about 9% of the total. But in 2018-19, this industry was the single biggest source of data breaches, with more than 2,500 reports filed, equating to 18.1% of the total coming from general business. Health was in second place on 16.3% and education third place on 13.1%, while the finance industry also saw a big spike, accounting for 10.4% of reports, more than 1,400 breaches in total. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. The Office of the Australian Information Commissioner, OAIC, and the UK's Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO, have launched an investigation into facial recognition software company Clearview AI. The investigation will focus on Clearview AI's data scraping practices and its use of biometric data under the UK 2018 Data Protection Act and the Australian Privacy Act of 1988. Data scraping is when a computer program extracts data from numerous different websites. This investigation comes just days after Clearview AI suspended operations in Canada following investigations by the privacy authorities of Canada, Alberta, British Columbia and Quebec into Clearview AI's use of facial recognition technology. Clearview AI describes itself as a research tool used by law enforcement agencies to identify perpetrators and victims of crime. Although this can have benefits for law enforcement, the firm has faced criticism for the privacy concerns this raises and whether individuals have consented to their images being used in this way. In Clearview's facial recognition app, which is not available to the public, users can upload a photo of a person. The app then matches to publicly available photos in which the same person appears straight from across the internet. The company reportedly has a database of over 3 billion photos collected from websites and social media platforms. Facial recognition requires large data sets of images to train its algorithms. The greater the volume and variation of images, the more accurate the facial recognition software will be. Clearview AI has got round this by scraping billions of pictures from websites such as Facebook or Twitter, which means it can avoid obtaining image licenses in the same way a photographer would need to obtain permission from the subject of their picture. YouTube, Twitter and Google have sent cease and desist letters to Clearview AI with Facebook and Venmo objecting to its data scraping practices. The American Civil Liberties Union is also suing the company alleging that it has violated the Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Act. In February, Clearview AI suffered a data breach in which its client list was exposed revealing which organisations were using its facial recognition service. In May, BuzzFeed reported that Clearview AI was ending its contracts with non-law enforcement organisations and private companies. Last month, several companies in the facial recognition market, most notably Amazon, IBM and Microsoft, announced that they would no longer provide facial recognition technology to law enforcement in the wake of the Black Lives Matter protest. The OAIC and ICO said they were engaged with other data protection authorities who have raised similar concerns where appropriate to do so. It will be interesting to see what happens with this and whether Clearview AI will follow its lead in Canada and just simply withdraw from the UK and Australian markets. We invited Clearview AI to comment but they declined to do so. If we receive any update on this either from the Australian or UK authorities we will of course bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Week Show. 
We are counting down to episode 100 of the GDPR Weekly Show. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. The Dutch Data Protection Authority issued a €830,000 fine against the Dutch Credit Registration Bureau, BKR, for violating data subjects' rights. The fine stems from BKR's practice of charging fees and discouraging individuals who want to access their personal data. As a bit of background, BKR is responsible for maintaining the Dutch Central Credit Information System, which holds information about all Dutch credit registrations and repayment behaviour by individuals, including information on insolvency, sanctions screening and publicly exposed persons' registrations. The system is generally checked by various companies, including financial institutions, municipalities, payment service providers and car lease companies, to verify whether a person is eligible for a loan, mortgage or credit card, so much like Experian here in the UK. Under the EU's GDPR, individuals have the right to access personal data collected about them and to exercise that right easily and at reasonable intervals. It follows from Article 12 of GDPR that the controller shall facilitate the exercise of these rights and that such information should be provided free of charge, and that's a fundamental of GDPR. Where possible, the controller should be able to provide remote access to a secure system which would provide the individual with direct access to his or her personal data, and that parrots are our 63 of GDPR. The Dutch Data Protection Authority had received complaints about the high standard BKR had set for accessing personal data. What BKR was saying was that to get free access to their personal data, individuals had to send a written request via post together with a copy of a passport. In its GDPR access procedure, the BKR indicated that submitting an access request via post would be handled within 28 days and it could only be requested once a year. For immediate digital access to their personal data or multiple access requests per year, individuals would have to subscribe to BKR for a minimum annual payment of €4.95 or higher depending on the subscription chosen. Multiple access requests per year were considered to have a repetitive character and therefore BKR claimed it could charge a reasonable fee based on Article 12.5a of GDPR. The Dutch DPA viewed that these practices violated Article 12 of GDPR for not facilitating the right of access, Article 12.2 of GDPR, and for not providing personal data free of charge, Article 12.5 of GDPR. Now, the fundamental argument here is that GDPR does allow data controllers to charge for the release of personal data after a data subject access request if that request is repetitive or vexatious. What it doesn't do is it doesn't actually set down within GDPR quite how often is viewed as being too repetitive. Now, I think I would agree with the Dutch Data Protection Authority that BKR's assertion that it's once every 12 months is wrong. But equally, I would see BKR having an argument that they could make a charge if, let's say, someone was to apply every week for a copy of their information. But anyway, in this case, the Dutch DPA has spoken. They say that the practice does violate Article 12 of GDPR, both in terms of Article 12.2 and Article 12.5. The Dutch DPA denies the arguments put forward by BTR that considers free access to personal data once a year is reasonable and that multiple annual access requests are considered repetitive without a need to assess this on an individual basis. Also, BKR's argument that allowing a one-time free access on an annual basis was legitimate on the basis of the report ACCIS 2017 Survey of Members Analysis of Credit Reporting in Europe, which provided that 8 out of the responding 32 bureaus provided free access to personal data once per year only, was denied. 
In response, the Dutch DPA states that this report is not relevant for the implementation of the right of access and the report cannot be used as an argument in favour of the BKR practice and in this we would ourselves fully agree with the Dutch DPA. The Dutch DPA states that access requests may only be denied where requests from an individual are manifestly unfounded or excessive, in particular because of their repetitive character. This, however, should be assessed on a case-by-case basis, which should be done at the moment the request is submitted prior to handling of the request. The controller shall bear the burden of demonstrating the manifestly unfounded or excessive character of the request. In consideration of the Dutch DPA's fining structure, the €830,000 fine consists of a fine of €385,000 for violation of Article 12.5 of GDPR and a fine of €650,000 for violation of Article 12.2 of GDPR. As the violations are both linked to the transparency principle aimed at giving individuals control of their personal data, the total fine is mitigated with 20% to €830,000. So an interesting judgment there from the Dutch DPA and one which I think anyone considering charging for supplying data to a data subject as a result of a data subject access request should carefully consider because we would certainly argue that unless you really are 100% certain that you can demonstrate beyond all reasonable doubt that a request is either vexatious or just too repetitive you run the risk of the regulator disagreeing with you and fining you, which could be a whole lot more than whatever you stand to charge for giving a report. So I would always say, good report for free unless you really, really have a 100% strong reason why you shouldn't. If you have a particular case you'd like to discuss with us on this, we are, of course, always available. Please just email us the details to helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com and one of our specialists will be delighted to help you. Celebrate our 100th episode with us and you could win £100. Just name the five countries where we have most listeners worldwide. Listen out for more details. Thanks, Isabella. Yes, it's true. All you have to do to be in with a chance of winning £100 when we come to celebrate episode 100 in a few weeks' time is to guess which five countries we have the most listeners in. Just list down the five countries, put them on an email to us, And one lucky person will win £100. We also have some limited edition t-shirts and mugs for runners-up. So don't delay. Do it today. Hey, Mike, tell our listeners what they have to do. Send your entry to competition at gdprradioshow.com. Crossing to the USA now, and Morgan Stanley is offering some current and former Welsh management customers a two-year free subscription to a credit reporting monitoring service to compensate for the potential compromise of personal data that was being stored on decommissioned hardware. In a memo sent on Thursday afternoon to Morgan Stanley's 15,400 brokers, field management head Vince Lumia said the issue stems from two data centres closed in 2016. Some servers and other hardware were sold to recycling companies by a vendor Morgan Stanley had hired to scrub the devices that had left some client data still in existence, he explained. The issue was brought to the firm's attention more than a year ago by a recycler and Morgan Stanley has been reviewing the issue with technical experts to analyse the potential risk to its client's data. We concluded that it would be very difficult for anyone to access or misuse the data given what we believe subsequently happened to those devices and the fact that many devices had design features that made it unlikely that data was accessed or misused, Lumia wrote. He went on to say, We have continually monitored the situation, looking not only for data associated with our current clients, 
but any information indicating a breach of Morton Stanley client data and have not detected any unauthorised activity related to this incident. On Friday, Morgan Stanley began contacting customers whose data may have remained on the devices as of January 31, 2016, offering the two-year subscription to their Experian credit reports out of an abundance of caution. Such free credit tracking offers often follow data breaches and are sometimes mandated by regulators, though the person emphasised that the hardware recycled incident was not involved hacking or compromised data, and has not held up Morgan Stanley's pending $13 billion acquisition of E-Trade Financial Corp. Morgan Stanley is considering appropriate legal action against the firm that it hired to scrub the data, the person said, declining to name the vendor. A Morgan Stanley spokeswoman declined to comment on how many current and former customers are receiving the notification. I wish I could find a better job. Have you tried Jubal? Jubal? Yes, Jubal.com. Jubal. We help people get jobs. No sooner have we passed the July the 1st enforcement date for the California Consumer Privacy Act, CCPA, than the California Secretary of State certified the California Privacy Rights Act, CPRA, the latest brainchild of privacy activist and CCPA's spiritual father, Alistair Metalliot, to appear on the November 2020 ballot after it gained the requisite number of signatures. McTaggart's organisation, Californians for Consumer Privacy, along with other prominent consumer privacy advocates, had repeatedly expressed frustration with the California legislature's efforts to amend CCPA in 2019 at the behest of the business community. And they responded with an even more robust comprehensive privacy law that will align California even more closely with the European Union's GDPR, General Data Protection Regulation. Pre-pandemic polling has shown the CPRA to be overwhelmingly popular, with support ranging as high as 90%, and it is heavily favoured to be approved by voters this autumn. CPRA has a bit of a delayed fuse, with the most of the law not going into effect until January 1st, 2023, and applying, with the exception of the right of data to access, only to data collected after January 1st, 2022. Enforcement will begin on July 1st, 2023. Thus, companies that scrambled to implement compliance measures to meet CCPA's effective date of January 1st, 2020 will have sufficient time to prepare for CPRA, which significantly broadens and expands CCPA. However, assuming CPRA is voted into law, it will likely spark a bandwagon effect among the many other states considering broad privacy legislation and increase the clamour for comprehensive federal privacy law to preempt the growing patchwork of inconsistent state laws. Indeed, the extended runway for CPRA compliance seems to have been designed with this very possibility in mind. So, just what are the major innovations and modifications of CCPA that are now in CPRA? The first is that where CCPA applies to for-profit businesses that process the personal information of 50,000 or more California consumers or households, CPRA raises this threshold to 100,000. CCPA's alternative test for applicability, i.e. $25 million in annual revenue or realisation of 50% or more of the annual revenues from the sale of personal information, remain in place. Next is that in addition to the right to know categories and specific pieces of personal information that a covered business has regarding the customer, the right to have personal information deleted and the right to opt out of sales of personal information, all granted under CCPA, CPRA introduced a new right for data subjects to correct inaccurate personal data held by a business. Again, quite obviously bringing it more into line with GDPR. 
CPRA defines a new category of sensitive personal information, which includes, amongst other things, government identifiers, i.e. social security number or driver's license number, precise geolocation, racial and ethnic information and genetic data, and resembles the special categories of data for which GDPR imposes more stringent limitations on collection and processing. CPRA allows consumers to limit the use and disclosure of sensitive personal information to essentially what is necessary to provide the goods or services requested by the consumer and other compatible purposes. A business would be required to clearly and conspicuously display a limit the use of my sensitive information link on its website unless it allows consumers to exercise this option via a preference signal such as from a browser. CPRA also expands CCPA's right to no obligations to include sharing and disclosure of personal information by a covered business and also expands the sale opt-out to sharing. Sharing is defined as transferring information for cross-context behavioural advertising, i.e. targeted behavioural advertising, regardless of whether or not the transfer occurs in exchange for valuable consideration, i.e. money. A business would be required to clearly and conspicuously display a do not sell or share my personal information link on its website unless it allows consumers to opt out from both via a preference signal. In addition to all this, CPRA extends the consumer's right to know beyond the 12-month look-back currently provided under CCPA. CPRA increases CCPA's administrative fines to up to $7,500 for an intentional violation or violation involving the personal information of someone who, to the actual knowledge of the party committing the violation, is under 16 years of age. CPRA also expands CCPA's private right of action for data breaches caused by a company's failure to use reasonable security measures to additional types of personal information, specifically email address and either a password or security question and answer that knowing that would permit access to an account. Again, like GDPR, CCPRA introduces new requirements on data retention. It requires businesses to disclose in their privacy notices the length of time the business intends to retain each category of personal information, including sensitive personal information, or if that is not possible, the criteria used to determine such a period. However, a business may not retain a consumer's personal information or sensitive personal information for a disclosed purpose for which the information was collected for longer than is reasonably necessary for that disclosed purpose. Thus, companies will need to align their retention protocols with the purposes of collection disclosed to consumers at or before the point of collection, as well as update their privacy policies to include the particularised retention disclosures required by CPRA. Just as with GDPR, this introduction of retention schedules with retention periods is likely to be a major compliance hurdle for many organisations. CPRA expands CCPA's rights to know and has access to specific pieces of personal information a business has regarding the consumer to include a portability type requirement reminiscent of GDPR. The business must provide the information in a format easily understandable to an average consumer and if technologically feasible in a structured common use machine readable format. Interestingly, CPRA creates a new category of contractor alongside CCPA's service provider category. As with service providers, covered businesses must have written contracts with contractors containing certain mandatory provisions, for example, restricting their processing of personal information on behalf of the covered business. There are also expanded requirements for what must appear in service provider contracts. Finally, CPRA directly subjects service providers and contractors to auditing by the businesses for which they process personal information. So again, you can see where the CPRA really is borrowing on concepts from GDPR. 
CPRA will vest primary rulemaking, administrative and enforcement authority in a new agency to be established by law. The agency will be called the California Privacy Protection Agency, which will assume the authority currently held by the California Attorney General under CCPA to issue regulations, bring enforcement proceedings and levy administrative fines. Under CPRA's terms, substantial new regulations, well above and beyond those recently finalised by the California Attorney General under CCPA, must be issued to further define and expand upon numerous areas concerned identified by the drafters of the law. Among the regulations to be issued would be ones requiring companies deemed to be engaged in high-risk data processing to undergo annual audits as well as risk assessments, and providing for consumer access and opt-out rights with respect to automated profiling and decision-making. Yet again, something which has been influenced, I think it's fair to say, by GDPR. The CPPA will be governed by a five-member board with expertise in privacy and technology and whose members will serve terms which may not exceed eight consecutive years. Because CPRA will be enacted through the approval of the voters rather than Californian legislature, the legislature is constrained from passing amendments that degrade the level of privacy protection extended to consumers. If California's voters approve CPRA this November as expected, companies should immediately start the work of upgrading their compliance and revisiting their privacy policies, whether they are covered businesses which determine the business purposes for processing personal information or act as service providers or contractors to businesses that do. In addition, since CPRA will bring California much closer to GDPR and other states, will also likely strengthen their privacy and data protection laws, a major gating question for corporate policymakers is whether it's desirable to simply extend CPRA protection to all US residents. The advantages of such an approach are greater scalability of compliance efforts, as opposed to maintaining an increased number of divergent privacy frameworks across multiple jurisdictions, lower regulatory and legal risk, since it may not always be possible to determine with certainty where a consumer or online user resides, and better optics for both consumers and regulators in states outside California who might not like being accorded at a lower level of privacy than Californians. In addition, while GDPR and CPRA are not entirely identical, their proximity might also dissipate in favour of a more standardised approach across national borders. Of course, since every company's business model and risk profile are different, companies should carefully analyse and weigh the options available. As more information becomes available on CPRA, we will seek to bring it to you in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. At the behest of the US government, German authorities have seized a computer server that hosted a huge cache of files from scores of US federal, state and local law enforcement agencies obtained in a Houston data breach last month. The server was being used by a WikiLeaks-style data transparency collective called Distributed Denial of Secrets to share documents, many tagged for official use only, that shed light on US police practices. The data, dating back to 1996, included emails, audio and video files, and police and FBI intelligence reports. Distributed Denial of Secrets founder Emma Best said the data, dubbed Blue Leak, comes from more than 200 agencies. It has been stripped of references to sexual assault cases and references to children, but names, phone numbers and emails of police officers were not redacted, said Best. Best said that Distributed Denial of Secrets obtained the data from an outside individual who sympathised with nationwide protests against police killings of unarmed black people. Some of the files offer insights into police response to those protests, they say. 
While hacking into computers and stealing data is a federal crime, US courts have consistently ruled that journalists may publish stolen documents as long as they're not involved in the theft of the documents. Distributed Denial of Secrets says it is a journalistic organisation that shares documents in the public interest, just as WikiLeaks did before being exploited by Russian agents to influence the 2016 US presidential campaign. The documents come came to light via a breach of Houston web design company NetCentral, which hosts portals for law enforcement agencies and fusion centers. State-run organizations created after the 9-11 attacks to share threat intelligence with local and state police and private sector partners. The prosecutor's office in Zikau, a German city near the Czech border, said in an email statement Wednesday that the server was confiscated on July 3rd in the town of Falkenstein following a request from the US authorities. The FBI declined to comment. A US Embassy spokesperson in Berlin did not respond to phone calls and emails seeking comment. The Zitel prosecutor's statement said it would be up to German judicial authorities to decide whether to hand the server over to US authorities. Shortly after Distributed Denial of Secrets posted the data, Twitter permanently suspended the organization's account for publishing links and images from the collection, citing a ban on the posting of hacked material. Previous distributed denial of secrets releases have included data on offshore Bahamas accounts used as tax havens, files hacked from the Chilean police, and data from a British provider of offshore financial services that has drawn comparisons on a smaller scale to the 2016 Panama Papers leak. If we have any update on this story, we will of course bring it to you in next week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. I hope you found it useful. I hope you found it entertaining. Please do let me know. Let me have your feedback by sending an email to podcast.insurity.co.uk. You can find out more about us at Insurity at www.insurity.co.uk. And I look forward to speaking to you again, same time, same place, next week. Have a good week, everybody, and remember to keep your data safe. And cut. That's a wrap. The GDPR Weekly Show is an insurity production. Follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash insurity.